Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Tanner, and with me, as usual today, is going to be Taylor. But before we get into things, we have some new patrons that we'd like to thank. Uh, so a big shout out to Alex and Nick. Uh, we just want to say thanks so much for joining us over on Patreon. We really hope you enjoy the bonus episodes over there. And just as an update for Patreon in general, uh, some upcoming bonus material. We need to re-record our November bonus episode, which we lost last weekend. If you were following along on social media, we talked about the film The Finest Hours, but we'll have to try that again. Thanks to Zencaster. Uh, also, we are trying to get in one more Dead Reckoning episode before the end of the year. So we have that story all picked out. Just need to go about getting that recorded. Uh, so with that, I will bring in Taylor. Taylor, how's it going? Pretty good. How about you? I'm doing very well. I'm excited to get in here and record the season finale of season two. <laughs> yeah, it's like you were saying, it's like a playoff game. It's it's exciting. Yeah, it's a different atmosphere uh, <laughs> in the in the podcasting booth here because we have a we have a big story to tell over these next Very big story. Yeah. three episodes. Uh, so I guess what else have you been up to? Uh, not a whole lot. I finished uh, Into the Abyss by Max Hastings. I thought it was solid. It wasn't my favorite one of his. I don't know. I feel like I've just read a lot of stuff about like the Cuban Missile Crisis lately. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a little fatigued on that. But it was interesting. I mean, it was it was a, definitely a good read worth doing. Other than that, um, downloaded a game for PlayStation 5 for, that I thought was going to be for the kids. Uh, Hot Wheels Unleashed. Turns out I love playing it. Uh, <laughs> Me and Darcy have actually been playing a lot of that. It is addictive and fun and awesome. It's one of those games that's just hard enough to like be challenging, but you can usually win. So like it's uh, it's perfect. It's made for children, but I love it. Awesome. Uh, what about what about you? Um, obviously doing a lot of stuff for this part one episode, but also doing some other reading. Uh, I started reading a book called Pity the Nation, mm-hmm. The Abduction of Lebanon. Uh, it's by Robert Fisk, and I actually first learned of this book via the novel Mornings in Jenin by Susan mm-hmm. Hawa that I mentioned on one of our media check-ins a while ago. And it's a it's a nonfiction book. It's a history of Lebanon, basically since the foundation of the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so obviously with all of the invasion and civil strife and kind of the aftershocks of colonialism, uh, that sort of molded Lebanon into what it is today, for better or for worse. And it's uh, it's really interesting. It's it's a country that I haven't really read extensively about. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they come up in a lot of you know global news and things like that. You know, just a couple of years ago, whenever there was that big explosion in Beirut, obviously they were in the news there. Right. So yeah, it's it's cool to to learn a little bit more about. Uh, somewhere that I really don't know that much about. Yeah, for sure. That does sound really interesting. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's what I've been up to. been watching the World Cup also. Yeah, uh, yep, that's been a lot of fun. I was a little disappointed with our last game, but uh, yeah, it was fun. It was fun to get out of the group, I guess, for a lot of countries. You know, that's a, that's a big achievement within itself. So Right. 
I did see a cool tweet that someone was like showing like, you know, what like a theoretical like USA team could look like if like our quote unquote best athletes went to soccer. And <laughs> it, it was pretty crazy when you start seeing like all the t- like athletic talent that we have that just doesn't get funneled that direction. If Tyreek Hill was a striker. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's, it would be interesting. Um, I think my other favorite World Cup tweet that I saw was um, someone tweeted like thinking about all of the atrocities that made Belgium having like these players on their team possible. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I thought that was a pretty good one. Yeah. Unfortunately, our our sweethearts, Senegal, were just eliminated by England. Uh, I was hoping they could, you know, shock the world there. What was the final score in that game? I didn't watch that one. Uh, last I saw was three nothing. Oh, but it could have changed since then. So, so it is. So it is coming home. England can celebrate while they can because they have to play France next, and France <laughs> really good. Right. Um, Kylian Mbappe is like literally a video game. Um, yeah. With just how technical and consistent he is. So anyway, that's the World Cup. My students at uh, at school are happy. You know, most of my students are uh, from Korea and from china obviously china not a Mm -hmm. super soccer power but korea doing very well and a lot of my Mm -hmm. korean students are very into it we had the u.s game on last week and then tomorrow we're gonna have the the korea game playing brazil we're gonna have that going on uh, in class because that's a big deal that they're very excited about japan also getting through Mm -hmm. uh, so that's big Uh, so yeah it overall i would say for me and my students it's it's been a it's been a good world cup so far that's cool. It's um, you know, it really is cool to see soccer kind of bring the world together. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike something else that brought the world together that we're going to talk about now. Yes, brought the world together in a very different way. <laughs> uh, so as you've seen, we've been posting about it, uh, hinting at it directly or indirectly for a while now. We are going to wrap up season two by talking about the Lusitania. So obviously, this is one that we didn't feel like we could cram into one episode to cover all the things that we normally like to cover in mm-hmm. an episode uh, because, you know, we there's things that we like to cover outside of just the technical aspects of the shipwreck. That is very often the least interesting part of the shipwreck to us. Mm-hmm. I think it's funny, too, like, as the, we've done this more, this might have been like a one part episode at the very beginning, like now looking at something like Empress of Ireland, like oh, sure. how much more we could add into those. So it is cool seeing, uh, you know, the whole scope of things get a little sure, bigger. Sure. And again, like tying back to, I, I had posted about this a little bit on Twitter last night, but it does all circle back to all of the awesome support that we get from our listeners and from our patrons. Mm-hmm. And just knowing that, you know, the time that we put into this really does have an effect on the back end of things on the final product. It, I think it does make it a lot. Uh, it, it makes us much more able to invest the time that these stories deserve. Yeah, it was cool getting tagged in people's Spotify recaps. I know that was cool. That was that was extremely cool. A lot of people complain about the Spotify wrapped. I think it's cool to see what people are listening to personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, thank you to everyone who who tagged us and shared those uh, on social media. Uh, so I guess with that, are we ready to jump in? Yeah, let's do it. As a disclaimer, in this first episode, we will talk almost zero about the Lusitania. <laughs> uh, this is basically the background portion that would normally be about, you know, 10, 15 minutes of an episode stretched out to a full episode length. 
we'll start out with a little bit of background and lead up stuff. Episode two, we'll get into the Lusitania herself and her sinking. And then in the third episode, we will look at some of the initial responses to the sinking, the overall aftermath uh, in terms of the First World War, and then just the legacy of the Lusitania. Um, on the show, we talk about you know some of those big names that everyone has at least a familiarity with, and Lusitania is definitely one of them. And looking at why has this ship really stuck with people over the years? Why is it in that same category up there with the Titanic um, mm-hmm. and the Edmund Fitzgerald, all of those big ships that people know? Let's talk about the lead up to World War One. <laughs> like, like let's literally just, whole podcasts, right? Let's just Never tick made. some boxes here. My, my good friend, Miss Tuckman, once said. Yes. <laughs> literally hundreds of books, probably thousands of books, dozens of podcasts, documentaries, TV shows, whatever you could you could check out that will tell you the story better than we will here uh, from a podcast perspective. Personally, I really enjoyed the History of the Great War podcast. Did you listen to that one? I have not, but actually I probably should because it was good. I, do, I do find that very interesting. I, I really enjoyed it. So if you're looking for a podcast, that's one that I have checked out that I, I really enjoyed. I thought it was well presented and in kind of a perfect level of detail so that it didn't get bogged down, but it did tell you, you know, you felt like you got the whole story. I think also um, Dan Carlin's blueprint to Armageddon. I think it's what his is called is really good. It's probably not the most academic necessarily, but it is like very engaging. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that one also. I think that was that was probably one of the first podcast series I listened to. Mm-hmm. So uh, to keep this manageable, we're going to look specifically at the buildup of navies of Western Europe. And a good place to start with that is in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. So at this point in history, Great Britain has been the more or less undisputed master of the seas for, you could say, well over a century, maybe two centuries, depending on who you ask. I don't know. I'm not a naval historian. But, you know, a lot of the things we've talked about in that period, you know, late 17 and the 1800s, no one mm-hmm. is seriously challenging Britain at sea. Even the idea of doing like the prison ships and stuff, like to have that infrastructure in place to do it kind of shows you, you know, where, what level they were operating at sea. Yeah, I mean, you look at, we talked a little bit about Napoleon when we talked about the War of 1812 and just, you know, Napoleon at times being basically unchallenged in Europe. And then just the one obstacle he can't surmount is the fact that Britain has this dominant navy. Mm-hmm. British policy in the early 20th century was to always keep their navy at a size so as to overwhelm any nation who might attempt to challenge her at sea to make this not even a game, basically. They looked with particular caution towards Germany, Hmm. the recently fully unified nation of Germany. (laughs) Obviously an established power on land, but with no real naval history to speak of. Yeah, that is interesting that um, I feel like living in the time we live in, we like think of Germany as a very like competent and capable sea power, you know, traditionally, Mm -hmm. and they don't really have that history. Right. And it's very similar to what we talked about with Virabus Unidas. We talked about the Austro-Hungarian Empire, mm-hmm. you know, this historically pretty dominant state that you don't really hear much about the, the Austrian Navy. Um, right. That's not something that you associate because it is primarily a land empire. Mm-hmm. And this is very similar, you know, Germany up to this point or, you know, Prussia pre-unification 
hadn't really had a reason to have a big navy. Right. Wasn't something they were really getting involved in. So back to Britain here. In 1906, uh, First Sea Lord Jackie Fisher, he wrote that, quote, Germany keeps her whole fleet always concentrated within a few hours of England. We must therefore keep a fleet twice as powerful within a few hours of Germany. <laughs> but like, where else are they supposed to keep them? <laughs> kind of stuck there. Right. So you see here what the goal is, you know, for, for, the, for, uh, for Britain is not just to have a navy that can beat the other navies, but navies that will basically take the concept of a naval confrontation out of the picture. It's almost like the before the idea of nukes, it's almost the idea of that mutually assured destruction of like, mm-hmm. well, if you attack me, like I'm going to attack back and it's going to be worse. Exactly. Um, you know, obviously having that dominant Navy had served them really well against Napoleon. And honestly, the strategy wasn't terribly different a century later. Right. If you can blockade any continental port at will. You know, it gives you maybe not an immediate trump card, but it definitely gives you a very good hand. I would imagine it also prevents you from being blockaded, which, as we'll like see in World War One and Two, like is something that Germany tries. It never hurts to be able to blockade the enemy, right? Uh, so, switching over here to Germany, obviously, we'll spend a lot of time talking about the development of the German Navy and then specifically her U-boats. So after German unification, naval power wasn't really something that was immediately pursued as a priority. Uh, Obviously, talking this period, we're talking about Otto von Bismarck. Mm -hmm. He wasn't super sold on the need for Germany to to really invest heavily in overseas colonies and the navy that they would need to defend those colonies. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know a lot about German history. But Bismarck was more of a true, like, just wanted a unified German state, essentially. Like, not necessarily interested in colonialist projects and, like, also, like, conquering neighbors. Or did he also want to conquer I, I guess, France? I guess, based on what I know, one one positive you could say about Bismarck is that I don't know that he wanted to conquer the world. But, like, Alsace-Lorraine is definitely Germany. He just wanted Germany say. to be in the best position of anyone. Right, Okay. So up until as late as 1890, the German Navy was basically just a Coast Guard. Hmm. No shade against the Coast Guard. You do good work. <laughs> but uh, this we're talking lowercase Coast Guard here. <laughs> Barely a Navy worth the name. Right. Uh, so one of the one of the main sources I use for this episode uh, is a book called The Lusitania Life, Loss and Legacy of an Ocean Legend by Daniel Allen Butler. Mm hmm. And he has an interesting quote here about the Prussian Navy. The Prussian Navy played no part in the succession of wars Prussia fought against Denmark, Austria, and France in order to create the German Empire. In fact, Prussian naval officers and seamen who served during the Franco-Prussian War were not permitted to list their service during that time as war service in their personal records. Dang. (laughs) So, as you see here, there's no real naval history here. Even if you are serving in the Navy, it's kind of treated as not really serving. I guess maybe how we would see the Space Force now. Right. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, yeah, like like technically, like like you get to use the special bank that the other like people in the military get to use. Yeah. But like other than that, like, all right. <laughs> you get to be in the Rob Gronkowski commercial. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I mentioned the year 1890. That was around the time when... Uh, Bismarck was relieved of his duties 
as chancellor by the young whippersnapper <laughs> Kaiser Wilhelm II. What an awful generation of like people. Like not great that family. I mean, yeah, but the fact that you got Wilhelm II and Tsar Nicholas, Tsar Nicholas. In, in Russia as as cousins, that's that's two bad ones right there. Yeah, like that's just like it takes a lot to just trump having those two, even if everyone else was all right. So, you know, with the uh with the old man out of the picture, Kaiser Wilhelm is free to pursue whatever projects he really wants to. Uh, and one of those things he wanted to do was build a big navy. Uh, because his cousin in Britain has a big navy. His other cousin in Russia has something of a navy. Until the Japanese get done with it. He, uh, he doesn't really have that. It is so funny that it really does come down to, well, they have it and I want it. Like he's literally worried about Britain, and he's cousins with the person who's in charge of Britain. We talked about it in the Dreadnoughts uh, in Viribus Unitas, how you had Austria-Hungary basically building them because Italy was building one, and mm-hmm. they didn't quite know what they were going to do with it, but they needed one. They're definitely. It is interesting to see that you know we think that like the nuclear armament stuff is like a new idea and like the new challenge, but truly, is it any different than this? Like. There's always going to be like the weapons tech races. I, feel I would like. say aside from the fact that you couldn't literally end life on Earth with a lot of dreadnoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, the results and the consequences could be different. Right. But I, like the process is the same relative to one another. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just kind of looking at this, you know, thinking about what a mo- what a momentous challenge this was. Like mm-hmm. you just said, we're kind of used to thinking of Germany in the age that we live in as a competent military power on all fronts, sometimes a little bit too competent. For their own right. good. And so it's strange to think of them as having essentially no navy. Well, you have to think too, like, what even infrastructure do you have to build these ships? Like, do you trust going to the Italians or someone else to be like, hey, build me a warship, I'll pay you? So yeah, this is huge to go from basically nothing to trying to, and this is this is one of Wilhelm II's goals, to to challenge Britain at sea. Mm-hmm. This is objectively insane, you might say, mm-hmm. except that it sort of almost works. <laughs> um so a key figure in accomplishing this massive turnaround in German naval fortunes is a name that we probably know and that's Admiral Alfred von Tirpitz. Yes, we do. That's definitely one that comes up a lot. He's a cool looking dude if you've never seen Alfred von Tirpitz. Give him a Google. He's got a cool uh bald head and forked beard. Um looks like a guy who should be an admiral. Or like a Viking or something. These are still the fun German like officers where you can be like, oh, they do just look cool. I can like that. Yes. Before all of them turn into Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. They're the the next generation. Like these guys, kids. Yes. Stay away. Don't (laughs) don't do that. So the accession of Wilhelm II was basically a godsend for Tirpitz, um, who was pretty forward thinking in in what he felt Germany was capable of Mm -hmm. at sea. And he's basically stuck in this sort of dead end position where, you know, if they're not going to be doing anything at sea, what's the point of, you know, even having an admiral, right? You know, he's, he's convinced that Germany can flex its muscle more than it's doing. Depending on how nice you want to be, you could call Wilhelm the second, either ambitious or reckless <laughs> somewhere on that continuum. Either way, it's exactly what Turpitz was ho- hoping for in right. terms of what he wants. There's a lot of adjectives you could use about Wilhelm II. An extremely small percentage of them are positive. <laughs> yeah, he uh, um, he is a guy. So yeah, this is great for Turpitz, but 
ends up obviously bad for almost literally everyone else. Right. Tirpitz took over as naval state secretary for Germany in 1897, and he immediately set to work getting what any good Navy needed at the time, and that was battleships. It is interesting that Tirpitz does have this like forward-looking vision. Like, if he wasn't motivated, it would have been easy to sit in that spot and collect a check and like mm-hmm. probably live a pretty comfortable life just kind of being in charge of things, you know? So it is interesting that like Tirpitz has ambition that matches Kaiser Wilhelm. Even with those big goals in front of them, there's also the realism of knowing that Germany simply wouldn't be able to match Britain in quantity of ships. Mm-hmm. Just absolutely not going to happen. They have too big of a head start. It's unattainable. So the alternative was to exceed them in quality. Now that German engineering that we hear so yes. much about. Yes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come up here with a vengeance. Tirpitz wanted German battleships to be larger, faster, better armed, better armored, and better crewed than their British opponents. I think that's interesting because you're kind of going up against like hundreds of years of tradition and like spree de corps that are built into the British Navy. Like we talk about being better crewed and everything. Right. That, that That's like an especially audacious thing. You're saying we're going to. There's no factory that makes good sailors. Right. There's no level of engineering that you can use to pump those out of a machine. That's that's a culture that you have to grow. How are you going to do this? Mm hmm. Germany was in a position where they didn't need a navy that could necessarily sweep Britain from the seas, but one that could make Britain hesitate about deploying her own fleet in battle against it. Mm-hmm. That that makes sense. Like, yeah, you don't have to win. You just have to be able to keep them where they are. Yeah, if I can just make them not want to fight, that's basically a win. If we can do anything to... Kind of ironic how the whole thing plays out for the German navy, but... yes. Which, again, we talked about in Scapa Flow. Um, in that episode, and I think mainly in the Viribus Unidas episode, we talked about the concept of a fleet in being. As a reminder, for anyone who's unfamiliar with this term, this is a concept where the biggest threat posed by a given fleet is simply the fact that it exists. <laughs> and it could theoretically do something i think that's that's why we have like eight super carriers in the navy you know in the u.s navy right like in theory we could deploy all these just in case um so this is a fleet that's mostly kept in a safe protected harbor and so despite the fact that it's not really actively doing anything it does require the opponent's fleet to tie down a lot of resources just in case they try to do something Uh, so that fleet in being typically is going to try to avoid battle but in doing so, also avoids being dealt with mm-hmm. because they're not allowing themselves to be joined in this full combat. Here we're talking about something similar that the Germans are going for, and that's the concept of a risk fleet. Mm-hmm. So this is the idea of a fleet that can't necessarily inflict a decisive defeat, but it is strong enough to cause unacceptable risks to the superior force. So in this case, the Royal Navy, especially in the early days of World War One. The German Navy is trying to draw the Grand Fleet out into this big engagement to inflict that kind of unacceptable loss. They're basically just not able to do it. Right. They sort of get what they want at Jutland. You know, obviously a, a controversial battle from a tactical standpoint saying, you know, who who's the real victor here? And as we talked about before, how neither side really gets exactly what it wants out of the battle. Mm-hmm. But Germany is just trying to cause... um unacceptable, unrecoverable losses, and they don't really get that 
that's always like an interesting strategy. And I don't know that it's, is there an example of where that actually works? I mean, I guess, I, I guess I can't think of one. Cause you think of something like, like the battle of the bulge and the Ardennes, it's the same thing, right? Like they didn't think that they'd win, but they wanted to see how far they could push. Right. And same thing here. Like it just doesn't seem like a sustainable strategy. Like, cause best case scenario, you still don't knock out the British fleet and like, you still have more fleet to deal with. I'm reminded of, we talked about after Jutland and how it really came down to recovery mm-hmm. speed. And we talked about, I, I forget if it was Reinhard Scheer or, or someone else, um, you know, asking how, how much time will it take uh, to get us, you know, back, back in business. And the response being, well, you know, we need three months to recuperate and repair and, you know, recrew these ships. Whereas on the other side, you know, the British are saying, well, we can be back out in like three hours. Right. Like, yeah. You just have more depth and you have to figure that the, the German losses count for more because you have fewer trained sailors because your mm-hmm. Navy isn't as big. Whereas like, even if the British are losing sailors, you've just got a lot more backfill potential. And like, as we said, like if your focus is on quality over quantity, you can't be losing these ships at all. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah your losses hurt more. Yeah, it's a very interesting strategy. Um, obviously, we know how it plays out in 2020 hindsight, but even looking <laughs> at it, it just, I don't know. I don't know that I buy it. I don't know if I believe that it would have worked. Although the the submarine, which we're going to talk about a lot, like you said, in hindsight, we kind of think of the submarine as inextricably linked with the German Navy, mm-hmm. kind of in both world wars. Um, they play such a big role in how we we think of the war at sea, but you know, even the the pretty forward-thinking Tirpitz wasn't really focused on their usefulness for a premier naval force, saying if we're a world sea power, submarines are not something that we need to be worrying about too much in terms of using them. I almost feel like that's where drones were, like, in in the past. Like, and now we're seeing in Ukraine, like, mm-hmm. small, you know, commercial drones being used effectively. It's interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's that kind of interesting dichotomy there with someone like Tirpitz, where for all of this radical ambition, still very much towing the line of what does a what does a good navy need, mm-hmm. and he's he's pretty much only focused on the battleship, uh, which again he could be excused for thinking that because that's the accepted thinking of the day, you know, and will be basically until the aircraft carrier. <laughs> was, uh, yeah, until air power can like really really be shown. So let's talk about the submarine. I know we have a lot of submarine fans who listen. Yes, we've we done do. it. We've done two submarine episodes, right? We've done the Thresher and the yes. Kursk. Yes. Those are always fun. Um, so, yeah, talking about the history of submarine combat, of course, I know for at least you and me, our first instinct as Americans, this might hold true for naval enthusiasts elsewhere, is to think about the Hunley. Right. Exactly. Um, the, the Hunley uh, from the American Civil War. Uh, a Confederate submarine, the first submarine to successfully sink an enemy ship. Yes, she did. It sank the USS Housatonic in, was it Charleston Harbor? Or uh, the blockade of Charleston, I think? Yeah. Uh, she sank the Housatonic, uh, killing five of her crew. Um, anyone who knows anything about the Hunley will also remember she was <laughs> notoriously much more effective at killing her own crew. Um, killing a total of, I think it was, 21 people in her lions led by donkeys has a really good episode about the hunley look it up 
in her three separate sinkings. <laughs> um, yeah. I've, I've always thought that'd be so terrible having to haul that thing back up. Like you're the crew who has to haul the Hunley back up and clean out the bodies again. Can you imagine though, that third crew that got lost? Like how do they convince you? Be like, yeah, man, we fixed it this time. It's good. Yeah. It was, we could call it the Tesla of its day. <laughs> it would randomly stop working and kill its crew. Um, so actually even earlier, uh, there was the turtle from the American revolution. Mm-hmm. I do remember that, which had actually been a functional submersible. That really wasn't the issue. The problem was that they didn't really have a way to successfully attack an enemy ship. Right. They were like, Hey, it's cool. We're underwater, but what do we do now? Yeah. Until the Hunley came around and revolutionized it by <laughs> ramming a torpedo on a stick into the yeah, side. They- <laughs> I I love like that they were just ahead of their time before like Japan made the actual like kamikaze submarine thing. The Kaiten. Yeah. <laughs> the CSS Kaiten. Um <laughs> also interesting thing that I I don't think I knew this. I didn't know that Robert Fulton mm-hmm. of Steamboat Fame played around with submarines. I didn't know that either. I only knew him from the steam engine. Yeah, he actually designed a submarine which he tried to sell to both Britain and France. Uh, after huh. Britain didn't want it. This is during the Napoleonic Wars. Oh, um, so he's trying to like both sides it. So you can actually see a parallel there where he tries to sell this thing to Britain and they're like, we don't need this. Like we have right. the best Navy in the world. What could we possibly need this for? However, Napoleon was <laughs> kind of intrigued by this because he's trying to break this deadlock, um, trying to break this British blockade. This would be something kind of cool to have. Right. Nothing ever really came of it. I didn't really look too deep into why presumably Napoleon had other stuff come up on his schedule. (laughs) Um, It probably also had like similar reliability to the Hunley. (laughs) Um, Jumping forward to the end of the 19th century, uh, we get to the guy who's considered the father of the modern submarine, John Philip Holland. Holland had emigrated to the U S in 1873 from Ireland. Hmm. And as an Irishman living in the 1800s, (laughs) Holland had a healthy dislike for the British. (laughs) And I thought this was fascinating. This is actually connected to his original design sketches for what would become the modern submarine. Huh? So like, that is kind of funny of all the nations in the world. You could argue that like Britain has had more pain inflicted upon them by submarines. (laughs) And this man probably is all right with most of that. (laughs) The Fenians play the long game. (laughs) So quoting here from from that same Daniel Allen Butler book. Keenly aware of the fact that Britain's domination of Ireland was dependent on the Royal Navy and that the Irish revolutionaries of the Sinn Féin movement had no chance whatsoever of being able to challenge Britain's naval supremacy by conventional means. He began sketching ream after ream of detailed design drafts for submarine boats, which he believed could offer the Irish patriots a relatively inexpensive means of paring down British maritime strength. That is fascinating that he's like, he's correct. He's just too early. Right. Like he has exactly the right idea here of like, well, this is, this is what this kind of thing would be ideal for. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, just think, you know, if Wolf Tone had had a few submarines, how different. Can you imagine, (laughs) can you imagine if Ireland had like, like a fleet of submarines and could just operate freely? Like, (laughs) It'd be interesting. Um, <laughs> I guess Wolf Tone would have also needed a time machine because he was like a century before this. But right. <laughs> anyway, um, he'd, have loved, he'd have loved it. He would have loved, loved it. 
<laughs> so yeah, this connects back to why submarines would have would would be useful um, at the beginning of the First World War. Um, so quoting again from Butler, doctrinally, the submarine was the weapon of a numerically inferior navy, where the capability to strike silently and invisibly, and hence unexpectedly, at an enemy fleet would go far to offset an opponent's superior numbers. So thinking of submarines that way, it makes sense why a nation like Great Britain would overlook their utility. Mm -hmm. If you're the best at a certain game, you probably don't want radical changes to the rules. It also kind of makes sense why Germany initially didn't put much emphasis on the submarine. Because they didn't see themselves as inferior to these other. They, They didn't see themselves as some small nation that would need this gimmick to put one over on one of the world powers. Right. And it also doesn't gain them any credibility, right? If they invest in this at first, everyone's still going to laugh at them and not take it as a deterrent. Exactly. They're trying to become a powerful Navy in the traditional sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this, this doesn't really help them either the optics of it or, you know, the practical applications of them, which haven't really been discovered yet. Right. Uh, so in the modern world where any respectable Navy uses submarines and, you know, world powers have, I looked at a chart, but I've totally forgotten the numbers between like 60 and 80, you know, for, for, all, for like the big world powers right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's strange to think of the submarine as a form of like irregular or like asymmetric warfare yeah, as it's that is, being proposed here. Um, it is interesting because now it's a very, it's a very standard part of any Navy worth its salt, even right. Even countries with tiny, almost non-existent navies, many of them have submarines, at least one, which which is interesting because, yeah, it brings it back to like what you mentioned about drone warfare, something mm-hmm. that, you know, obviously history hasn't played out quite yet. But you could maybe see something like this in a similar capacity of is this something with a limited use or is this something that's going to become, you know, a, a game changer? Right. Uh, So Holland's new design was able to surmount a lot of those obstacles that had kept previous submarines from being truly useful. Uh, One of these was the ballast system, uh, specifically the use of water ballast to control the depth of the vessel together with the system of rudders to adjust the vessel's course and attitude. So the Hunley also had had ballast tanks that could be filled and then hand pumped dry. Mm -hmm. They also had iron weights bolted to the hull. Mm-hmm. as ballast that could be unscrewed from the inside if they needed to like surface in an emergency how'd that work out for them uh, apparently not well because <laughs> for aforementioned reasons um uh, also its propulsion was a major difference in making the submarine finally practical mm-hmm. back to our friend the hunley that had been operated by hand cranks uh. you can see like the the reconstructions of it where there's those like those lines of places where dudes would stand and have to crank these things. One of those cranks was for propulsion and one was for steering. Holland designed a dual propulsion system with gasoline power while the submarine was surfaced and battery powered electric motors for when it was submerged. Interesting. Uh, This is the system that will sound very familiar. If you've ever read about, you know, U-boats or submarines, you know, needing to be surfaced to charge those batteries and then running off of that power when they're uh, submerged. Yeah, that's cool. And this is basically that same system that he comes up with. Uh, so while that functionality of the submarine as a vessel was important, just as important was finding a way to effectively arm them. 
Because again, that was the ultimate death of the Hunley was because she sank herself. Because uh, ramming a torpedo on a stick into the side of a vessel is not a great way to make sure you get home. Right. It's not really a sustainable naval strategy. <laughs> you can't be losing one submarine for every ship that you sink. So enter the torpedo tube. With the addition of the torpedo tube and the use of, quote, automobile torpedoes, <laughs> Holland's vessels could sink an enemy ship at a distance without putting themselves at risk of being taken with it. Very important. Yeah, right. So neither the automobile torpedo nor the tube were new. The Royal Navy had been equipping vessels with these for for some time now. Holland's breakthrough was in realizing that the torpedo tube would go perfect with my submarine. Interesting. Match made in heaven. Yeah, I guess that is interesting. I don't I guess I didn't even think that it would be used for like torpedo boats and you know, destroyers and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know. And it's interesting around this time also because different navies have different doctrines and France in particular was sort of less selling out on the whole big ship dreadnought thing. They were looking at smaller boats, torpedo boat type things mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, not need to invest quite as much in the infrastructure of their navy. I guess, but also playing that game, like, sure, if you sink three of my little boats, that's fine. But if I sink one of your battleships, like, you still had a bad day. Again, back to the Viribus Unidas, we talked about, um, I think it was the St. Isvan, that same class of battleships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this big dreadnought being taken down by Italian torpedo boats. Also, I want to mention the word torpedo, because we're talking about automobile torpedo. Obviously, that adjective will get dropped, and we'll just call them torpedoes. That just becomes the standard torpedo. Correct? Right, because before this, a torpedo is like in, like... uh the, the quote from David Farragut, the damn mm-hmm. the torpedoes full speed ahead. He's not talking about torpedoes that we would think of. He's talking about basically mines. Right. So now this is kind of what we think of as a torpedo. Uh, so by 1900, the U.S., France, Greece, Turkey and Russia all had submarines of some kind, and they were mostly built to Holland's specifications. Britain and Germany still largely uninterested in the submarine. They're trying to sort of stay above all this. You guys can play with this toy. We're going to be over here at the big boy table, which is, I guess, the North Sea at this point. Is there anywhere you'd rather be less than in a Russian submarine in 1900? We talked about a ship that became a Russian submarine in the Rusalka. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, no, I wouldn't. That sounds awful. Maybe the Turkish the Turkish one probably isn't exactly like palatial, but the Russian one has to be awful. I don't think the Greek one would be very good either, <laughs> honestly. I mean, let's be honest, none of them are great, but <laughs> Yeah. I've seen some of the tanks that France was rolling out. I definitely <laughs> wouldn't get in a submarine. Right. Here. So the German high seas fleet finally got their first submarines in nineteen oh four. And this is essentially just because France and Russia had both placed orders for their own. Back to the the dreadnought thing, the nuclear weapon thing. These guys have them. I might as well have some too, just in case. Right. So funny thing here, and I, I think this is extremely funny in hindsight, knowing what happens like 10 years after this. These Russian and French submarines, they were being built at the Krupp Germania Werft shipyard. Oh. At Kiel, which is in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> Again, just funny that that you would be having uh, someone who not too far from now is going to be uh, your 
mortal enemy building these for you. Also interesting that it definitely lets the German like naval officials kind of see like, well, how is that going? Like, does it look like it's going to be a viable weapon? Like you get to watch this thing. Yeah, like pretty easy to spy on this. Like you would have to try harder not to see what they were building right uh, here. Oh, no, I'm not looking. I'm just I'm just strolling through. No, don't mind me at all. (laughs) Very interesting. The first German U-boat, the very surprisingly named U-1. Ah, a creative uh, people. Officially joined the fleet in October of 1904. So in the Virbus Unidas episode, we talked about how Austria-Hungary's late arrival to the Dreadnought game Mm -hmm. was actually beneficial. Because they could see what were other navies doing, what mistakes were they making, what shortcomings did their ships have that we could avoid. Um, so they were able to design around those and and put together what was a pretty effective ship. In in business school, we learned that that is called the second mover advantage. Perfect. There we go. Using that degree. <laughs> Speaking business language here. <laughs> so Germany was in a very similar situation with the U-boat here. Um, mm-hmm. They kind of sat back and watched what other people did and said, you know what? OK, we we could pick up a couple of these. Most notably, there was the German avoidance of the gasoline engine in their submarines. Interesting. I would imagine diesel would be better. Gasoline has the obvious risks of combustion more so than other other fuels and also uh, fumes in this you know small enclosed vessel. Another advantage was in the emphasis on the vessel's optics. Uh, So Germany had some of the best optical engineers in the world, um, specifically in the firm founded by Carl Zeiss, which they they still make high quality optical equipment. Yeah, yeah, that is. It's always funny when you see those names that from history and you're like, oh, I know that company. Yes, there's a suspiciously large number of German companies uh, who (laughs) get their start around this time. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Don't uh, don't look into what else they may have done. (laughs) I don't care how much you like that Hugo Boss jacket. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Zeiss, they they still make uh, stuff for like camera lenses, firearm scopes, Bet they uh, do. vision care, all kinds of stuff. And yeah, they were still top of their game at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, those superior optics are a great example of what we talked about with Germany having to put the focus on quality instead of quantity. Right. You know, those better optics, maybe that results in more accurate firing of torpedoes, which results in more sunken ships uh, more efficiently. So it all sort of the benefits roll up there. However, with all this, it's worth restating that even by the outbreak of the war, neither Germany nor anyone else really saw the submarine as something that would leave such an imprint on the First World War. Uh, So quoting here from Edward Horton's Illustrated History of the Submarine, The Germans were not developing any sinister master plan. They were not consciously developing the ultimate weapon. They were getting into the swim with everybody else, and they built the type of submarine they did for the logical reason that it was the only one that could be of any use to them. As Europe hurtled toward war, Germany was not looking to the submarine as her salvation any more than Britain was looking to it for her ruin. Interesting kind of all a conversation about hindsight and what we Mm -hmm. know now that we didn't know then it's easy to say in retrospect there was this you know uh the the evil machinations of the german empire trying to sink all these ships with their you know roving bands of wolf packs and it's like it kind of just worked out that way yeah and i think it's it is almost you kind of have to be careful to not 
use what you already know about the Second World War when talking about this, because it is a different German army and a different German people kind of at the helm. World War II, it seems like the Wolfpacks, it was like done more like purposefully and with intent. Whereas in World War One, it's like, well, that's just how we fight this war. Like that's the way it has to be. I think especially getting into part two and part three, we'll talk a lot more about things like cruiser rules mm-hmm. and and how that was done. Basically, what was the acceptable methods of doing that? Because, yeah, as we'll see, like Britain doesn't have clean hands either in a lot of that. I think I forgot who it was that was talking about like why World War One is kind of the more interesting war to look at sometimes when comparing the two. And it's like this is the last of just rich royalty fighting each other. Mm-hmm. Like the reasons for this happening have more to, in common with Napoleonic times than future wars. And it is interesting like that there isn't just one cause. And like you said, it's it's easy to get dragged into that association with World War Two. You know, this this is a war where it's it's much harder to, to say that one side is like ontologically evil. Right. And the other is is uh, fighting for good. Obviously. I think the average American probably has a bias um, toward one side. But boy, will we talk about what people thought back then. <laughs> right. That's going to be a very key part of uh, of part three. We're going to talk about, you know, the role of German Americans in, in the neutrality movement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and not just German Americans, you know, the the average American being very opposed to intervening in this war that has nothing to do with them. Mm-hmm. So the end of that quote uh, mentioned Britain. So speaking of Britain. The Royal Navy couldn't just ignore the submarine, it, right. uh, you know, as a military technology. You know, France, Russia, Germany, they're all getting in the game. So Britain first came out with the A1 class, uh, basically just a bigger, stronger version of the American Holland boats. Uh, those were soon followed by the D class and E class. I don't know if there's a B and a C class. <laughs> they weren't mentioned in the source I was reading. Um, one of our naval historian listeners maybe could shed some light on that. The E-Class displaced around 700 tons and carried four 18-inch torpedo tubes. So while German U-boats and British submarines had comparable top speeds, the last big major advantage for the U-boats was their range, which is nearly double that of the British submarines. And that is something by design. That they're trying for there is the range, I'm assuming. Yeah, so back uh, back in that quote about how, you know, they built the ship's that served their purposes. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, as we look at more about submarine warfare in the next episode, you know, seeing where these U-boats operate and the length of these journeys that they're taking, um, because, you know, the channel effectively becomes blocked off. Um, so, you know, they're sailing all the way up around Scotland uh, through mm-hmm. the Irish Sea, all the way around Ireland. Um, these are some long trips and then having to be out there and still be able to make it back home. Right. You need a, a, a pretty significant effective range. Um, so, yeah, with that range, uh, of course, that played a role in the effectiveness of the U-boats can spend more time out. They can spend more time on station, preying on shipping. Moving here to the outbreak of the war. We did touch on this already uh, in that Vera Basunidis episode. Uh, and that's episode 46, actually. So Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary, heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, and his wife Sophie are killed in Sarajevo <laughs> on June 28th, 1914. I feel like even though, I mean, it is like one of the main points, it just feels like it's almost become like a meme at this point that World War I started just because of this one reason. Right. 
the spark that was needed to set off a bunch of other stuff. I think Kaiser Wilhelm called it that brawl down in the Balkans in that letter <laughs> that we read uh, when he right. was writing to uh, to Nicholas II. So by mid-August, obviously, the war is well and truly on uh, with Germany invading France by way of Belgium. Uh, obviously, that settles down into the nightmare of barbed wire, machine guns and artillery and trenches that we have read so much about. Right. So I think that's kind of all we'll say about the war for now. Um, we'll cover it more in the next two. So let's shift to another key player in our story of the Lusitania. And that's the United States. Mm-hmm. So we got to talk about American neutrality. Despite all of the memes about back to back World War champs. Right. The U.S. doesn't do that much in World War One mainly because we're not in it for very long. Yeah, it is interesting when you start really looking at it, like all of the the big names and historic places and awful things that you read. And like, yeah, we're still neutral for like almost all of those things. Obviously, a main priority for the US at the outbreak of the war was to stay out of a European war that didn't directly concern them. And also to preserve her commercial interests. Of course kind of have to know which sides that you're going to need to trade with. You got to know who was going to win first. Or in in your magic dream world where this works out, you could just keep trade open with both sides. That, that, this is true. Um, so in his article, An Inner Circle of One, Woodrow Wilson and his advisors, Robert Tucker draws a comparison between the U.S. situation at, at the beginning of World War One with her position uh, at the beginning of the War of 1812. Which is interesting because we've spent some time talking about the War of 1812 recently. Right. Um, also, chance to shout this out. If you, like us, are 1812 pilled recently, the Nations of Canada podcast, one of my favorite history podcasts, beautiful podcast, but just recently, the last couple of episodes has gotten into the War of 1812. Phenomenal string of episodes. The whole podcast is excellent. I recommend starting from the beginning, but... If you're particularly focused on that that portion uh, of, you know, specifically Canadian uh, and U.S. history, definitely give those episodes a listen. They're excellent. But back to what we're talking about. That comparison between the U.S. position in both of those times. In the wars of the French Revolution and Napoleon, a young America had sought to preserve its neutrality while insisting on its right to trade with the belligerents. Based on the assumption that the advantages of trade with America would force the belligerents to concede to America's demands as a neutral, Thomas Jefferson saw peaceful coercion as an effective substitute for war. But events proved Jefferson wrong. America could not escape the travails of a weak, neutral state attempting to preserve its commerce amid a hegemonic struggle of great powers. <laughs> Reading about the attempts of the U.S. to basically leverage its position to try and stop the fighting between Britain and France and also remain a primary trade partner for both of them. We kind of overestimated how much both of them needed us and it ended up not working out very well for the U S right. However, this is about, you know, a century later, the biggest difference this time is that the U S actually is in a position to wield some of that decisive influence mm -hmm. that Thomas Jefferson only could have dreamed of. The U.S. at this point has a population of around 90 million. She's got basically the double the economic power of Germany and is growing at an enormous rate, which is a very different position 
uh, from the early 1800s. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Back when Robert Fulton was playing around with his submarine. <laughs> Which I think he did call the Nautilus. Interesting. However, despite the U.S.'s status as an economic powerhouse, one of the big measuring sticks for world powers at the time, and obviously present day also, was the ability to mobilize and wage war. Mm -hmm. The U.S. hadn't really been tested in this capacity, like at all, unless, of course, you count the Spanish-American War, which you probably shouldn't, because it's, <laughs> it's, it's not much of a war in terms of you know, being fought on equal footing. Right. Um, it's, you know, fought against a, a tottering Spanish empire that can't really muster much of a challenge. Right. Like, I think we picked like the weakest one and we're like, you, you'll do. If you look at the intervening span of time, though, um, looking at what like Britain and France have gotten up to, even looking at a war like Crimea, which is as renowned for its blunders as anything else, it, at the end of the day, still was, you know, European powers marshalling their forces, sending them very, very far overseas, supported right. by navies and, you know, getting a job done. Yeah, there still has to be some, like, infrastructural, like, capacity to, like, achieve that. Not nearly as effectively as it could have been, but it 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 still, you know, is far more than, say, the U.S. could have boasted of in terms of what are, how are we projecting power uh, right. overseas. So, yeah, the, the U.S. is kind of an unknown quantity here. And so not really being a factor militarily, she's obviously still key on a diplomatic front because of the economy. One of Britain's key priorities was to push the limits of her blockade on Germany to the max uh, without causing any sort of rupture with the U.S. How, how far can we push the envelope on Germany and not make the U.S. mad at us? <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> uh, we will. There's actually some interesting bits of criticism and um, verbal sparring with Britain about really stepping over the line here. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that in, in later episodes, what we mean there. Um, U.S. neutrality had widespread support from the American public. In part three, we'll get into, uh, you know, a big portion of the support for neutrality did come from the really significant population of German Americans. It would take some pretty major developments to push the American people into that firm support for U.S. entry into the war. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, while the sinking of the Lusitania wouldn't be that major development that caused that to happen, it did do right. quite a bit to weaken public perception of Germany. We talked about this being one of those wars where you can kind of see like, well, there's no real good or bad guy. It's just kind of, you know, European royals fighting with each other. And this kind of does inject that into the war of like, well, now a portion of the population is going to see the Germans as inherently evil and outside of human decency. Yeah, it is interesting that like, I feel like when you're, we're younger, especially that the kind of like the Lusitania is an easy point to be like, well, that's what made the US join World War One. And like, that's not necessarily true. Like, it's a major factor. But uh, I mean, I guess like things like, like well, I'm sure we'll talk about the Zimmerman Telegraph and like it's kind of dense to explain to like kids, I guess. But it's not as simple as like the Lusitania was not like a 9-11 moment. Necessarily. Right. And and so much of it, I mean, it even comes down to, you know, in the justification for ultimately declaring war, Lusitania is never mentioned. Right. And yeah, we'll get more into the ins and outs of it, but we'll see that, you know, from a from a hard 
maybe harsh legal perspective, a rational person at the time could easily have seen this as justified. You know, whether mm-hmm. you are American or not, this was something that, you know, it's a tragedy, but. I think that there's some parallels to like the U.S. shoot down of that Iranian passenger plane, the Russian shoot down of that Korean airline flight. I think it was a Korean Airlines flight. Yes, it was. 007, I believe, which is ironic. You know, there was a, I think there was a sitting U.S. congressman on that flight. And that didn't cause Russia and the United States to start shooting at each other fully. Mm -hmm. So it seems weird to think that the Lusitania wouldn't have been more outrageous. And it was outrageous. But like, why would it be any different than that? It's it's kind of a parallel to the modern day. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. I'm glad we are because I... I was going to try and get more into this episode, but we are <laughs> over time as is. Right. <laughs> to, to leave things here, obviously, we're leaving this open-ended because there's two more to follow. To conclude part one, I think we'll leave you with a bit of suggested reading. This is some homework for next time <laughs> that we'll, we'll post. It's available online, but we'll post a PDF of it on Patreon, probably. We can, put, can we put a link to it and then the show notes? Yeah. This is a short story by Arthur Conan Doyle, Mm -hmm. and it's a short story called Danger, Being the Log of Captain Sirius. This is a story that was published in July 1914, Mm -hmm. and it's interesting in its prophetic opening lines. It is a short story that ends up having some eerie similarities to what will happen to the Lusitania. Interesting. Just to to end things here, I think I want to read part of the first paragraph. Okay. It's an amazing thing that the English, who have the reputation of being a practical nation, never saw the danger to which they were exposed. For many years, they'd been spending nearly a hundred millions a year upon their army and their fleet. Squadrons of dreadnoughts, costing two millions each, had been launched. They'd spent enormous sums upon cruisers, and both their torpedo and their submarine squadrons were exceptionally strong. They were also by no means weak in their aerial power, especially in the matter of hydroplanes. Besides all this, their army was very efficient, in spite of its limited numbers, and it was the most expensive in Europe. Yet, when the day of trial came, all this imposing force was of no use whatever and might as well have not existed. Their ruin could not have been more complete or more rapid if they had not possessed an ironclad or regiment. All this was accomplished by me, Captain John Sirius, belonging to the navy of one of the smallest powers in Europe, and having under my command a flotilla of eight vessels, the collective cost of which was 1,800,000 pounds. No one has a better right to tell the story than I. So I, I won't say too much about the story, but it's a cool little story, and you'll see some some strange similarities to how things ultimately played out, especially given when that story was written uh, in July of 1914. Arthur Conan Doyle kind of assessing the submarine and seeing what are the possibilities of this. That sounds really interesting. I'm looking forward to reading that fully. So with that, we're going to wrap up part one. I will get started editing this. And we will talk to you with more on the Lusitania next week.